The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Hey, there's a, uh, a movement <clears throat> in the publishing world amongst certain publishers uh, that captures a, a broader movement that is happening in what historically has been called the church. Um, listen to the names of some of these titles of books published in the last decade or so. Uh, How to Be a Christian Without Going to Church. Subtitle, The Unofficial Guide to Alternative Forms of Christian Community. Or, Churchless Christianity. Another, A Churchless Faith. Subtitle, Faith Journeys Beyond the Churches. Or, Christianity After Religion, The End of Church, and The Birth of a New Spiritual Awakening. Unchurching, Christianity Without Churchianity, and then lastly, and perhaps most provocatively, How to Quit Church Without Quitting God, subtitle, Why Going to Church Today is Unbiblical, Unchristlike, and Spiritually Risky. Now, there's all kinds of reasons that books like this exist. Uh, We don't have to hide our head in the sand, do we? The the history of the church, and we can even zero in on the same last decade or so, though it's been true since its inception, but the immediate history of the church is littered, isn't it, with stories of scandal? Um, Many of you are familiar with a certain podcast that's very popular today. You don't have to listen to more than one episode of the Rise and Fall of the Mars Hill Church podcast to get a taste for it. Abuse, spiritual abuse. In different sectors of the church, sexual abuse, Um, misogyny, financial scandal or abuse. There's political idolatry happening in the church. Co-opting the church for the purpose of a social cultural agenda, domineering leadership, discrimination, patriarchalism, racism. And in our day of the internet and social media and everyone living online, which was amplified 200 decibels in COVID times, these horrible things happening in some churches, horrible things, impacting real people in real ways, they get projected also onto the broader body, other churches who are affiliated with a certain denomination or a movement or who hold certain theological convictions in common. And we start interpreting our experiences in light of someone else's. This happens. Sometimes we do that rightfully so. In the case of, you know, real systemic issues in the church or cultural replication that happens from church to church, I'm in no way downplaying the deplorable things that have happened in some churches. And we're not going to say today, hey, we'll just like brush those under the rug. No, sometimes the authorities have to be called because of some of those issues and dealt with in those ways. But also, we have to admit that sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes we read in our experience into someone else's and our own smaller grievances, disagreements, conflicts, preferences, sins, (laughs) anti-authoritarian biases. It all plugs into a broader narrative, too. And then the combination of it all, those actually impacted by truly horrible things in the church and others watching in, right, gives birth to deconstructionism, uh, deconversion, cancel culture comes to church, which might be the very antithesis of the gospel when you think about it. New fundamentalisms seeking to take the moral high ground on any variety of issues, whether they're biblical or not. Ex-evangelicals, have you heard this term? Or what one more recent article called the fracturing of evangelicalism? Listen, what I want to contend for this morning, unlike the authors of those books that I listed off, is that it is not only unbiblical to disassociate from the local church, it's actually detrimental to Christians everywhere. Or to put it in the words of one pro-church author, a Christian without a church is a Christian in trouble. 
Now, we're a mixed bag here in this room, okay? Uh, we have church lifers in the room, and we have unbelievers in the room. Uh, we have new to the church and old to the church in the room. We have kids in the room, teenagers being shaped by their parents' experience of the church in the room. We have on the fence and all in in the room. We have suspicious, skeptical, the weary and the struggling, um, the disappointed and discouraged, the wounded, the hurt, all in this little room. And what I want for all of us here, no matter what kind of mystery meat you are in the stew called us, right? I want for all of us, what I want for all of us is to love the church. This one in particular. Right? But if in going through this series on the church, you, you come to the conclusion, you know, I'm not really sure that Two Pillars is the right church for me. Um, then our heart for you is that you'd seek out and find another local church to be all in with and to love and to, to, to be on mission with and to serve and become a member of. I mean, there's a lot. There is a lot of really great churches in our city. And I mean that in the most genuine way possible. And so if this one's not right for you, we'd love to help guide you to another one. But I also want you to love this church. That's our aim. Another way to say it is that our goal with this sermon series is to, to raise our ecclesiology around here, all right? There's a big Sunday morning word for you, ecclesiology. It's a, it's a word that's actually made up of two smaller words, ecclesia and logos. Ecclesia, as we've named this series, and you'll see here in a minute, means church. Logos means the word. Okay, in, in this context, the word of God, scripture. So ecclesiology then is what the word of God teaches about the church. That's ecclesiology. It's not just the study of the church. This is, a, this is an important distinction. It's not just the study of the church. It's the study of what God's word teaches about the church. Super important distinction. We're not interested in a merely contemporary critique of the church. Like This is where deconstructionism typically falls short. Listen, it's easy to deconstruct what's wrong with the church. That doesn't take me and Adam more than 10 minutes in a Monday afternoon staff meeting, okay? It's easy. Anybody can do that. Anybody can. What's much, much harder is opening up God's word, Giving yourself to his vision for the church, knowing the pains and the troubles and the trials that that will bring with it. I mean, have you read the New Testament lately? Um, <laughs> there's some pretty jacked up churches in there. I mean, the, the Corinthians, are you kidding me? Those guys had some problems, didn't they? But for the recipients of Paul's first letter to them, it took a lot for them to pursue God's vision for the church. It wasn't enough to just point out everything that was wrong. See, we don't need to know what the loudest voices on social media have to say about the church. What we need to know is what God's word says about the church. That's what we're interested in. That's ecclesiology. And whether you believe it or not, your ecclesiology radically impacts your life. It radically impacts your life. But we also have to reckon with the truth that your life, your experience in the church and of the church also radically influences your ecclesiology. Now that's true of all doctrines, but it's uniquely true of ecclesiology in part because it's a doctrine that is lived out uniquely in community. The community of other sinners saved by grace who, guess what, uh, sin against each other, right? So what is the church? I mean, that's a major question for us to answer. We've actually built this series around a number of questions, okay? So whether you're all in on the church already, and you're like, okay, fine, what are we talking about the church? Or if you're skeptical or wounded by the church or, or whatever it is, these are questions that we all need to be able to answer, Today, what is the church? Next week, why go to church? Then, what does the church do? Like, what's the, what's the purpose of the church? What do I do with church baggage? 
Okay, some of the, the, the wounds and the hurt that we talked about a little bit ago. We're going to do a week on that. What is church membership? Why is that important? Where is that at in the Bible? Who leads the church? What's the role of men and women in the church? What's my role as an individual in the church? As well as why gospel communities? Okay, narrowing down on how we operate as a church and ending with who funds the church. Because it takes finances. So 10 weeks we're going to spend here, and then we'll get back into preaching through the book of Romans a little bit more. Right? But listen, every one of these weeks is influenced by this week because what you understand the church to be radically impacts your life. Understanding what the church is, it drives our understanding of why we come together like this. It informs our understanding of the purpose of the church and church membership and so on. So what is the church? Well, for starters... It's important for us to do some word work. Word work. All right, the Greek word used in the New Testament for church that gets translated in our English Bibles is for church. It's, it's the word ecclesia. Ecclesia. It shows up 114 times in the New Testament. You're like, where's the, where's the church in the New Testament? Show me where it's not, okay? 114 times in the New Testament. In fact, no other Greek word is translated church in our English Bibles. It's always ecclesia. Now, ecclesia is used in multiple ways in the Bible. It's used, for example, to describe a riot that gathered in an amphitheater in Ephesus in Acts 19. That was an ecclesia, in a sense. People were gathered together. Gathered together. This word is also used 77 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe God's people gathered together at Mount Sinai, for example, to receive instruction in the Ten Commandments. Gathered together. But the most frequent use of ecclesia in the New Testament has to do with Christians gathered together. Sometimes it refers to all Christians everywhere across all time, like when we read that Christ died for the ecclesia. Sometimes it refers to all Christians or perhaps all churches in a region, like when Paul says to the Corinthians that the ecclesia in the province of Asia send you greetings. It may also refer to a church in a city, possibly consisting of multiple churches in that city, like in Acts chapter 20, when Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the ecclesia. But then most often it's used to refer to a local congregation, a local congregation of believers, like the ecclesia that met in Priscilla and Achilles' home, or the ecclesia that Paul planted in Lystra or Derby, or Iconium, or Colossae, or Corinth, or Ephesus, or Thessalonica, or Berea. This is why theologian Sinclair Ferguson says that the best way to define ecclesia is the called out together. The called out together. Called out of the other peoples on the globe. Think about a little testament called out of sin and death and darkness, and then called into relationship with Jesus Christ together with others, that's the ecclesia. Again, most frequently it's used to describe a local congregation, a local assembly of believers. And Christians over the years have labored to provide some defining boundaries for an ecclesia to be a true ecclesia. This was especially important at the time of the Protestant Reformation. This is carried down to us today, but the, at the time of the Protestant Reformation, two major boundaries or marks of the local church emerged that were universally agreed upon by Protestants, meaning non-Catholics everywhere. And those were the right preaching of God's word and the proper administration of the sacraments or ordinances, meaning baptism and the Lord's Supper. Included in the proper administration of the sacraments, then, is the proper administration and proper practice of church discipline, sometimes spelled out on its own as a third mark of the church. In other words, in, in order for a church to be a church, the Bible has to be properly preached, right? Like, this right here is the church's authority, the scriptures. And we're not making things up as we go, and as we go along, everything gets, gets, gets checked back to here, the word of God. Like, we teach the Bible. And if you love the Bible, you'll love two pillars. And if you don't love the Bible, and you stick around here, 
You'll either grow to love the Bible and two pillars, or you won't grow to love the Bible and you'll grow to hate two pillars. The first and essential mark of a true church, right, proper preaching of God's word, God's sufficient word, his authoritative word, his infallible word. Secondly, baptism in the Lord's Supper. These two things that Jesus commands churches to do. They're not optional. Two things he commands to do which encapsulate and visually set forth the gospel to us. One way to think about the two marks is that the church is generated by the right preaching of God's word and it is contained and distinguished by the right administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Again, with church discipline included. We'll come back to some of that on our weekend membership. But we also don't want to go too far down a head hole here. So let me put this definition before you. Uh, it sort of sums up what we're talking about here. This definition comes from a pastor named Jonathan Lehman, uh, who's written a great little book titled Church Membership. And since we're into subtitles this morning, this one's really good. How the world knows who represents Jesus. That subtitle alone is worth the price of a few different books. Okay? How the world knows who represents Jesus. Jesus, I think he sums it up well. He says, a local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ in his kingdom through, here's the two marks, gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. Now, notice a couple things here. The church is not a building, <laughs> Right? Um, church isn't a thing or a place that you go to, no matter how often we use it that way when we talk in America, right? Um, or if you said to your kids this morning, you know, hurry up, you're going to be late for church. It's not an event, it's not a place, it's not a building, it's not a thing, right? Biblically speaking, you don't go to church, you are the church. The church is a people. It's a group of Christians, but also, it's not entirely true to just say the church isn't a building, it's a people. If that were true, we could still do churchless Christianity. We could quit church without quitting God. Still call ourselves the people. But that, the Bible teaches us, is unbiblical. It is unchristlike, And it's more than spiritual risky. I would say it's nearing spiritual suicide. No, the church is a group of Christians who regularly gather, remember? Just like this, in Christ's name. Ecclesia doesn't just mean the called out ones. It means the called out together ones. In fact, William Tyndale, one of the early translators of the Bible into English, originally translated ecclesia from Greek to English as congregation. So when someone says the church isn't a building, it's a people, like we often say around here. <laughs> we ought to reply, that's close. But the people become a people by regularly coming together as a people. The, the church, we might say, is, is more than a gathering. It's never less. It's never less. Think about a family. Okay? My family doesn't stop being a family when Iris and Lydia and Vivian are at school and Megan and I are at work, we're a family even when we're scattered throughout the city for different things. However, if we never came together, even though we're biologically related, if we never came together, it, it sort of falls short of what we understand a family to be, doesn't it? The same is true with the church. The ecclesia is the called out together ones. Definitions matter. They matter. Which is just another way to say that doctrine matters. The doctrine of the church, it matters. Your ecclesiology matters. It radically impacts how you live your life. What would be different, for example, if the church was a building? What would be different? Well, it would be something that you go to when you're not too tired or busy or when you need a spiritual pick-me-up. It'd be something that you go to rather than a part of who you are, wouldn't it? What would be different if the church was 
a unifying central for, uh, or a unifying center for cultural activism. If that was the definition of the church, well, you'd opt in or out of that local congregation based on your agreement with that branch of activism or perhaps your level of zeal for it. What if the church was a, so, a social hub or a social club? You'd join to find relational fulfillment or not, if you've got plenty of friends already, and you'd look for the very best relational fit, right? Seeking, for example, people who think like you or vote like you or look like you, same stage of life as you, same general schedule and amount of free time as you. What if the church were an institution? Or maybe we should say only an institution, since there are institutional aspects to any lasting legacy church. But if the church were only an institution, think about it. It'd be something you could critique. It'd be something that you could deconstruct from the outside looking in without actually applying the critique, the shared responsibility for the critique, as someone who is, in fact, a part of what you're critiquing. It's convenient but it's not biblical. Or if the church were a, a great, this is another one, a, a great concert venue, teaching center, you'd seek out and find the very best music that fits your stylistic preferences and the very best teaching that suits your interests, which would ultimately lead you to online church if you play that out to its logical conclusion, or disembodied church since the easiest and the surest path to the very best music and the very best teaching is to survey the world of music and teaching and download it. Just download it. That's not the church. That's, that's no ecclesia. The church is not a vending machine of religious goods and services. It's more than a means to an end. Now, the church, when we open up the word of God and let it do the defining, when we are interested in biblical ecclesiology, what we find is that the church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through the gospel preaching and the gospel ordinances. Now, that's a broad stroke, high-level definition, and we'll see it fleshed out in God's Word over multiple weeks in this series, but what I want to do with our time remaining this morning is much more granular than that, much more personal. I, I want us to see what the Scripture has to say about the church. When we open the Bible, and the New Testament in particular, the first time that we encounter the church is out of the mouth of Jesus. Did you know that? What does scripture say about the church? Well, number one, Jesus promised to build the church. We see this straight out of Matthew 16. Roman read it a minute ago. After Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, good response, Peter. All right, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then verse 17, Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. An entire Amazon rainforest worth of paper and books has been written probably on this passage, right? Whatever, whatever Jesus really means here about the rock and Peter and who, all that sort of stuff, right? Whatever is going on there, one thing we know for certain is that Jesus promised to build his church. I will build my church, Jesus says. It's not ours. And we didn't build it. It's his. He builds it. In context, of course, Jesus is talking about the, the universal church, or what we might call the, the invisible church, when we get further into the series and get some of these details down. This is the church as, as he sees it across all time, all space, consisting of all Christians everywhere. But that invisible church, I hope you realize, manifests in the book of Acts, as well as throughout the world today, in local, visible congregations. And this is significant. This is a significant part of what Jesus came to do. He's outlining here his mission. You see that? We should pay attention. He's describing what he plans to accomplish. He came in part to build his church. This is really important to him. 
He's already begun to do it. He's at work continuing to do it right now. And one day he's going to finish it. Listen, the church isn't a human project. It's not just a religious version of other kinds of institutions we have, like schools or businesses. The church is special. The church is sacred. It belongs entirely to God. It is built entirely by God. And if we're going to be co-workers with him, working with him as the Great Commission would command us, we need to be following his blueprint, his definition of what the church is. We don't get to decide. Not for ourselves. We don't just got to put all our heads together and decide what we want church to be. What did he come to build? The ecclesia. Number two, Jesus loves the church. He loves the church. Ephesians 5, I, I know we usually only read Ephesians 5 during premarital counseling and wedding sermons, okay? But um, it's actually one of the most important passages that we have in the New Testament on the church. In it, Paul is addressing husbands and wives, but he does so by talking about the church. Look, look at Ephesians 5, verse 25. He says, husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. Now, husbands in the room, listen up because you're going to get a little bit of application here without even trying. You know, just listen to the Holy Spirit a little bit and you'll be like, oh, huh, that's how I should love my wife. Yes, that's it, right? But again, the context here would be the universal church. God's people everywhere across all time. But again, that doesn't mean it doesn't apply to the local church. In fact, it's only true of the universal church to the extent that it's true of the myriad of local churches. Which means, Jesus loves Two Pillars Church. <laughs> he loves this church. Not in the abstract. Not in theory. In reality, he loves this church. He built it. <laughs> I'm not talking about the building. He built us. He loves Two Pillars Church like Jeff here loves Two Pillars Church. Uh, Jeff called me up last week when I'm sick in bed with COVID. When we, after we canceled church and made that announcement, and Jeff heard about that, he called me up to encourage me. And one of the ways that Jeff encourages me, and he's been doing it for about a dozen years now, is he tells me how much he loves Two Pillars Church. And if you've ever talked to Jeff about Two Pillars Church, you know he loves this church. According to Ephesians 5.25, that's Christ-like. It's Christ-like. Jesus loves two pillars like Jeff loves two pillars times infinity, right? He perfectly loves two pillars. Perfectly. Not because two pillars is perfect. <laughs> no way. We absolutely are not. But praise God, his love for two pillars isn't conditioned upon our perfection, is it? It's not conditioned upon how lovable we are. I mean, think about it. How lovable do you really think we are in the grand, cosmic, spiritual space of things? <laughs> right? I mean, ever since Genesis 3, sin has made us all unlovable in certain ways and in various degrees. Hasn't it? We're prideful. Oh, we're prideful. I know we don't, we're not supposed to talk about that. But we're prideful people. Sometimes we don't bother to show up here on Sundays, not because we're sick or quarantining like many are today perhaps, but in seasons of, of health, sometimes we don't show up here on Sundays because we're lazy. <laughs> or we haven't arranged our life around worshiping Jesus the way that he deserves. Or we just need a day off. Or maybe we're avoiding Jesus. We're avoiding some of our brothers and sisters. Some of us roll in late despite the fact that Jesus has been here waiting. You know, if there's anybody in our life that is due our timeliness, wouldn't it be Jesus? I mean, some of us are more afraid of our boss than we are Jesus. 
Most of us sing off key. Talk about how lovable we are. You know, Jesus is probably, Jesus is never like, man, Todd needs some vocal lessons. Sometimes I sing up here with my eyes closed. I kind of get into it. I'll raise a hand. I'll, I'll sing with my eyes closed. So you know what happens seven out of time, 10 times when I sing with my eyes closed? I get the words wrong. Whoever, is, like David up here this morning, it probably drives people crazy when I start singing the wrong words to a song. How lovable is that? Not that lovable. I mean, being like a cute, aw, kind of way. Not really. Not really. We daydream. We nod off during sermons. Not me. Usually, usually you all, right? Sometimes I feel like nodding off to my own sermons. We get upset with each other when we don't see eye to eye on politics or vaccines or masks. We say offensive things. Sometimes we say offensive things intentionally. Sometimes it's unintentional, isn't it? I didn't mean to offend you, but it did. We grumble. <laughs> oh, man. Just like the Israelites in the wilderness, we grumble about the weather. We grumble about the parking lot being full. <laughs> we grumble about the parking lot, having rock or whatever. It, you know, we, we grumble when someone cancels in a role that they're supposed to volunteer for. Now, we got to fill in instead. When the coffee pot runs out, I grumble when that coffee pot runs out. I'm like, oh, you got to be kidding me, right? Or when there's a line at the bathroom, the bathroom, <laughs> singular, yeah. We question our faith, we criticize others, usually just on the inside or someone who we think will share that criticism. We commit that sin again that we promise to never commit again. We, we break our New Year's resolutions before we've even crowned a college football playoff champion. <laughs> we lash out at our kids. We complain about our boss. We're impatient. How lovable are we? None of us are rock stars. <laughs> None of us are millionaires or super disciples or mega evangelists or insta-famous. We are all pretty ordinary sinners saved by grace. And Jesus loves us. Jesus loves Two Pillars Church. And that's not an excuse for us to not change. That's not an excuse for us to not repent, to not grow in the faith and grow in maturity, both as individuals and as a church. It doesn't mean there aren't things that we're doing or not doing that we need to stop doing or start doing and change. But listen, what we need to hear and what those who have left the church in the last couple of years, I'm not just talking about two pillars right now. Uh, the statistics show that somewhere around one-third of church attendance pre-pandemic is not back to meeting in person together. That's not just here, that's everywhere. And what we all need to hear is that deconstruction is never enough. Reform is always needed, yes and amen, but even in the midst of our needed reforms, Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves Two Pillars Church just like he loves you. And you're not perfect. You don't have it all together. And if you think you do, Two Pillars will never be the right place for you. Never be the right church for you. But for all of us who are willing to humble ourselves, to see ourselves as a part of the church, which means a part of the problem, part of the unlovable yet loved by Jesus, we get the awesome privilege of being a part of the church which Jesus builds and Jesus loves. After all, let's not forget, number three, Jesus gave himself for the church. That's the last part of Ephesians 5.25. Paul doesn't just say, hey, husbands, listen up. Do it like Jesus did. No. He said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Paul says it this way in Acts 20, verse 28. Speaking to the Ephesian elders, he says, pay careful attention to this unlovable yet loved by Jesus posse called the church, which he obtained with his own blood. You know, one of the biggest things that I miss from our pre-pandemic worship gatherings is uh, something that I'm really impatient for us to return to. It's how we used to serve communion around here. With servers up here, men and women holding the elements, serving the elements to you, 
speaking a blessing over you, as, as you walk through the line and receive the elements, I miss looking you in the eye as one of your pastors, privy to, let's be honest, quite a bit of information about you, <laughs> your sins, your weaknesses, your wounds, your limitations, all those things, and being able to say, Tyler, the body of Christ was broken for you. Or, April, the blood of Christ was poured out for you. And that's not just true for us as individuals. I don't come through that line like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. That's true for us as the church. You know, one of the metaphors that we find in Scripture for the church is that of a family. And when we trust in Christ for salvation, we don't just get a renewed relationship with our Father in heaven. We're adopted into this family of God, which finds expression in the local ecclesia. This isn't just a room full of people who have individually decided to follow Jesus and join together for spiritual practices and relationships. Christ died for every believer in this room. We are the body for which he gave up his body. And that means the person in front of you who annoys you sometimes. <laughs> Jesus died for them. The person that you rode here together with in the car that annoys you sometimes. <laughs> Jesus died for them. The person behind you who sings too loud or sings off key. Jesus died for them too. The person behind you who breathes too loud. <laughs> Chews their communion bread too loud. <laughs> swallows the, the wine too loud. Jesus died for them too. The parent who's wrestling with a little one who makes more noise than you'd prefer in the sanctuary on a Sunday morning. Jesus died for them too. The person who doesn't dress like you think that they should dress or has too many or too few tattoos. Jesus died for them too. The old, the young, the teenagers brand new to the faith, frustrating you with their doubts and their fears and their lack of assurance or their relationship issues, or, or their complex theological questions that you don't know the answer to. Jesus died for them too. Jesus has set his love upon sinful, weak, Fearful, ignorant, annoying, non-clamorous, wounded, rebellious, angry sometimes, spiteful people like you and me. And he adopted us into his family and he made us brothers and sisters. And listen to how he speaks of us. Not just how he speaks of you. This is how he speaks of us. Even Two Pillars Church. Clean, clean. Holy, blameless, faithful, saints, chosen, beloved. <laughs> Friends, if Jesus promised to build his church and he loves his church and gave himself up for his church, if the church is that central, that important to him, it must also be that central to us. That's way not easy, okay? It's just not, which is why we need to remember number four, Jesus sanctifies the church, all right? So listen how Paul says this in, in, in the whole there of Ephesians 5. He says, Husbands, love your wives, we've seen this, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might what? Sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of water with the word. I know you're thinking about your wife right now, husbands, or wives are thinking about your husband right now, what he's doing or not doing. This is Jesus and the church, though. He washes her with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. 
just like Jesus did to the church. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. (laughs) Would you listen to that? Jesus nourishes the church. Jesus cherishes the church. He's washing us with his words so that he might present us to himself in splendor. He's sanctifying us. He's making us holy. And one of the primary means that Jesus uses to sanctify the church is the church. Isn't that brilliant? And irritating? And messy and beautiful? God didn't adopt you into his family, into his church, because it's a comfortable place for you to hang out with a bunch of people like yourself, get a little spiritual encouragement, and then live happily ever after in a collection of people who never sin against you. (laughs) It's not the church. Are you kidding me? No, he adopted you into a spiritual family of misfits and outcasts, sinners saved by grace. That's who we are. He's using the church not to make you happy. He's using the church to make you holy. He wants to present you before himself spotless, blemished, unblemished. I love how Paul Tripp, um, well, we'll come to that in a minute. I love how one author, uh, I was reading this week, he calls us the, the, the church, he calls us the fellowship of difference. That's who we are. The fellowship of difference. For some of us in this room, we don't actually have a whole lot of common, a whole lot in common with a lot of the other people in this room. I mean, some of you are into board games. <laughs> some of you spell that phrase differently. You know what I'm saying? Some of us are into sports, others are into arts. Some of us are really into and outspoken about politics. Some of us are living quiet lives, having a more mediocre grasp of all of that. And still voting. Some of us are rabid Husker fans who never give up on the team. Others of you aren't crazy, you know? (laughs) Some of us are homeschoolers. Some of us are public schoolers. Some of us are home birthers. Others of us aren't crazy, again, you know? Some of us are introverts. Some of us are extroverts. Some of us are are very people-y people. And we we love to be with people. And we get that energy from being with people. And we're very outgoing. Others are quiet and reserved. I mean, look around. A good number of the people in this room, you would not be natural friends with under normal worldly circumstances. Some you would. But in a room this size, there's people that you don't have a terrible lot in common outside of Jesus. And yet in Jesus, you know what we have in common? One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. (laughs) Through these people who you don't like that much all the time. God wants to show you his love. We've got to understand this if we're going to be able to do this church thing together over the long haul. If not, when it gets hard, which it has been, or it gets harder, when we get bored, we'll we'll bolt, succumb into the ethos of our culture and go looking for the next best thing. You're never going to find it. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of great churches in our city. Yes, you might find one that's a better theological fit for you. You might find one that's a better philosophy of ministry fit for you. And, and if that's the case, yes and amen, go for it. But you know how many perfect churches there are in this city? Zero. Zero. Paul Tripp, here's that quote, defines the church this well. <laughs> you got to love yourself some Paul Tripp. He says, what is the church? It's a chosen gathering of unfinished people still grappling with the selfishness of sin and the seduction of temptation living in a fallen world 
where there is deception and dysfunction all around. That's not the most optimistic definition of the church that I've found in my studies. You know? But listen, that's who you are. That's who I am. That's who all of us are together. Might not be optimistic, but it sure is realistic. And if that's true, should we be shocked when someone offends us? Should we be surprised when someone sins against us? No. Should we be fine with that and just become a doormat? No. Jesus says in Matthew 18 to go to them, tell them their fault, between you and him or her alone. And if they listen to you, you've gained your brother. You've gained your sister. And if they don't, you take another along. If it's an elder, First Timothy 5 says you establish the charge on the evidence of two or three witnesses and you bring it to them. If they persist in sin, you rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Now that's easier said than done. <laughs> But through that process, Jesus sanctifies his church. The church that he promised to build and is building, the church that he gave himself up for, the church that he loves. I had two more points, but we're going to wait and see if we can work them into the future sermons, but they're this. Jesus glorifies himself through the church. That's Ephesians 3.10. If we have more time, we'd go there today. And Jesus says the church is the hope of the world. That's great commission stuff. Let me try to summarize those points and combine with the other ones with just a couple of quotes here. First from an old Quaker who said it this way, the church is essential to the Christian not because it brings in personal advancement or even inspiration, but because with all its failures it is an indispensable instrument of the redemption of the world. 2,000 years now, gates of hell haven't prevailed against it. Commenting on this, former pastor and author Dave Harvey adds, whenever something or someone we love fails us, we experience that failure as a deep pain. If we love the church dearly, we'll be hurt when it fails. And it will fail. If you're in a church for any length of time, you'll experience its failures and weaknesses. It won't live up to what it promises. Trusted leaders will make mistakes. Ministries we devote our lives to keeping afloat may be cut because of budget or other priority concerns. Someone we love will leave the church. And he says, what rescues true ambition for the church is not the quality of the organization or the maturity of the people. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. It's his great ambition. And because we're committed to Christ, it should be our great ambition as well. Here's my challenge to us this morning. Make the church your great ambition. Make it your great ambition. This one. Two pillars. And if not this one, another one here in town. But go all in. Go all in. Giving yourself to the real Jesus amongst real people in a real church consisting of real sinners in need of real grace making a real difference. I'm going to end with just a few action steps for you to gear you in that direction, not necessarily for this week, but for this series. We'll go over these quick. Number one, pray for Two Pillars Church all the time. Would you pray for Two Pillars throughout this series in particular? Would you pray for God to strengthen us, for God to fortify us, to sustain us, to be receptive to what it is that he has for us? Would you pray that your love for and your joy in Two Pillars Church would increase and that that would be true for all of us? That the Holy Spirit would bring about spiritual renewal and spiritual vitality amongst all of us as the church. And that God would raise the bar of our ecclesiology. When I say that, I don't mean that he would merely swell our heads, that he would swell our hearts. And that by his Holy Spirit, he'd give us a great ambition to be deeply invested in his church. Number two, renew your membership. 
Listen, on February 6th, after our worship gathering, we're going to have a members meeting just for existing members. You know if you are one, right? you've been through our class, you've done a membership interview, you've been announced to the congregation as a member. One of the things that we're kicking off in that members meeting on February 6th after the service is something we haven't done for a couple of years or more. Membership covenant renewal. And I want to ask you to be prayerfully preparing for that, not just to go through the motions and click some boxes. Maybe this is the season for you to reread our doctrinal statement, to reread the membership covenant, and to recommit to being all in with two pillars. And number three, become a member. Okay, rather than a, offering a separate membership class this spring, we decided just to fold in our membership process into this sermon series. And so if you're not a member, something we want to encourage you to do, in addition to attending on Sundays, is to work towards becoming a member. The way that you're going to do that is to attend each Sunday, all right? Just be here, show up. If you have to miss, if you're serving in kids' ministry one week or something like that, catch up online and then fill out a membership application. You can do that anytime. You can do it today. Fill out a membership application. The link's up there on the screen. And then we'll schedule a membership interview with one of the elders to complete that. Pray for the church. Renew your membership. Become a member. Can we do that together? Let's pray. Oh, Father, it is in our culture and It's in our nature. It's easy to find fault and to deconstruct. And we are so thankful that you haven't related to us in that way. Oh, you've you've found fault. You've, You've found sin, but you haven't run away from us. You've run to us in the person and the work of Jesus. It's in our nature to cut bait and and run or to hide or to avoid when things get hard or messy or annoying. That's not how you operate. By your Holy Spirit, you have begun a good work in us and you're not giving up until it's done. Thank you. Thank you for promising to build your church, even this one. Thank you that we get to be a part of that. Thank you for your love for the church, even this one. Thank you, Jesus that you gave yourself up for the church, including this one. Thank you for adopting us into a fellowship of difference where you're sanctified, nourished, cherished. Thank you for the real church made up of real people and your real presence with us. We pray in your powerful name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.